might not become a kid movie classic, but it makes up for a great little getaway to enjoy with the whole family. That in itself earns a golden ring. That's from Yolanda Machado of The Rapper Thoughts on Sonic the Hedgehog, which is one of the movies I'll be reviewing this week here on Cinephile, along with Loose, a film that came out last year starring Octavia Spencer, Naomi Watts, Tim Roth, and breakthrough actor of 2019, Calvin Harrison Jr. In addition, we're talking some TV here. The Outsider, terrific miniseries on HBO. Seven episodes in. There's three more left to go. And we've got a great guest as well. Josh Horowitz of MTV, my old buddy. Uh, we hung out at Sundance together because of our mutual friend, Ben Lyons. Some of the Critics' Choice Awards a year ago. He's a great guy. Very funny. Tons of great stories. He's got several podcasts along with his work for MTV. Uh, he's got stories for days. I feel like I could just name an actor and I'll have a story about them because he's probably interviewed them or run into them at some point in time. Also, our Mount Rushmore is a beauty. HBO original series in honor of The Outsider, which is a great miniseries. We're going to do the best original series, which is an impossible task. And Total Recall returns as well. 2014 Oscars. These are the films from 2013. Gravity, Wolf of Wall Street, so on. Thanks again to Manola Dargas. She was terrific. As always, uh, our guests, I find these critics are so smart, so learned. And Manola was really good. If you didn't get a chance to listen, go back and listen. My guy Mitch going back and listening to Joe Talbot, Last Black Man in San Francisco, which he just watched. It's a great film. and It was a great interview as well. So please do always go back in the archives and subscribe and rate and review. Give us some love on Apple Podcasts. As always, we appreciate it. Let's start with Sonic the Hedgehog. The film follows the misadventures of Sonic as he navigates the complexities of life on Earth with his newfound human best friend, Tom Wachowski. Sonic and Tom join forces to try and stop the villainous Dr. Robotnik. Welcome back, Jim Carrey. From capturing Sonic and using his immense powers for world domination, the film also stars Tika Sumter and Ben Schwartz as the voice of Sonic. So I have no real uh, reference point when it comes to Sonic. My kids don't watch it, but I took three of my four boys to go see it. Very cold this past Friday here in North Jersey. I mean, just if I can lament the price of tickets after, uh, you know, being so grateful to the BFCA and the Broadcast Film Critics Association, I've not paid for a film the last two months. Lucky me. The only one was Star Wars, which I took the boys to go see in late December. I tell you, man, these price of tickets, I, I feel you. All of you listening are going to listen. I don't go to the movies anymore because it's too expensive. I mean, listen, tickets for four of us, $52 on a Friday night. And then, of course, you got to get popcorn. So large popcorn. We can share it. Or it's slushies, mandatory for all three of those boys. And then I got to get the caramel popcorn. I mean, God, they got the caramel and the vanilla. You mix both of those. $42. Like, oh, my God. So in a vacuum, if I said $93 for Sonic the Hedgehog, I'm going to have heart palpitations. But honestly, a decent kid movie. Ben Schwartz plays the voice of Sonic. James Marsden's in the role as well, playing Tom Wachowski. But the reason I wanted to see it was Jim Carrey. I mean, I got to get the boys out of here. So I said, you know, just get out of the house. The choice is either Doolittle, which is getting 18%. <laughs> I mean, we love gorillas, but Robert Downey Jr., huge misfire there. You know, my options are limited. I don't really want to see uh, whatever the hell that animated show movie was. Uh, something spy. Spies in Disguise, I believe. Will Smith, Tom Holland. So instead, we go with Sonic. And honestly, if you have kids or you like kid movies, it's entertaining. And the main reason, of course, I want to see it is Jim Carrey, who I love, one of the funniest people alive, one of the great Canadians ever. Uh, fantastic. Goes back to his old days of, you know, listen, I mean, Mr. Popper's Penguins leaves a little something to be desired, but he's obviously an actor that uh, can play broad and here playing the villainous Dr. Robotnik, he gives you at least a handful of solid belly laughs, uh, particularly the ending, his last, uh, his denouement for his character is very funny. So listen, it's a pleasant little diversion, particularly when you have good popcorn and good slushies. Sonic the Hedgehog, I'm recommending it just for Jim Carrey. I'll give it to two and a half Maple Leafs which maybe is a little bit generous. But honestly, I, nostalgia sells, as my friend Anish Shroff texted me. So Owen Gladman of Variety writes, one of those clunky live-action adventure comedies with a digitally animated generic Wiesenheimer played in the middle of it, plopped in the middle of it. And David Sims of The Atlantic, it's not the cavalcade of horror promised by that first trailer, but rather the kind of bad movie one forgets instantly upon leaving the theater. Come on, David! It's entertaining. It's Sonic, man. Don't be such a Grinch. Although he makes an interesting point, the fact that people were so disgusted with the original Sonic. There was quite a backlash. So they had to tinker with it and remodel it a little bit. I believe the movie was supposed to come out last winter, if I'm not mistaken. Because then when I saw Carrie was on Colbert last week, by the way, I mean, Jim Carrey, one of the all-time greats when it comes to being on talk shows. He did three segments with Colbert a week and a half ago. If you haven't seen it, go look it up if you're a Jim Carrey fan. It was hilarious from start to finish. But uh, yeah, so they, they did digitally alter a little bit, mix it up. The rebooted Sonic did great at the box office, 57 million. No surprise there. Kids' movies always do well, especially this time of year. So, two and a half Maple Leafs. Joe, there's no chance you're ever going to watch Sonic the Hedgehog. Maybe years from now, when you have kids, you'll plop it on just to support Jim Carrey. 
Yeah, no, I will definitely see this. I really, 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 really wanted to see this movie. I love Jim Carrey, always have. But also, if people haven't seen Parks and Rec, Ben Schwartz is so funny in that. So I just imagine he would have done a great Sonic. What, what did you think? He was good. He was a good voice actor. He's got good energy. Um, like Sonic, I didn't know much about him. He's just obviously incredibly fast. He can get through his entire island in three seconds. So how can you not love a speed demon like that? It's like a roadrunner for millennials yeah. of the 21st century. Did you play the video game? I didn't, no. He's fast in the video game, too. Check it out sometime. All right. Sonic the video game. Next on my agenda. <laughs> uh, next we discuss is Loose, which came out uh, last summer and then came out on DVD. I finally got around to the screener because, of course, you know you prioritize all the ones that got nominated for the Oscars, so now I'm just filtering through. But honestly, it's a really good movie, and I recommend it. It was nominated at the Independent Spirit Awards, which was on IFC. Uh, it was nominated for Best Picture there. Of course, I believe Marriage Story won. I can't remember how I'll double check that. Anyways, Loose is about this. Ten years since Amy and Peter Edgar, Naomi Watts, and Tim Roth adopted their son from war-torn Eritrea. They thought the worst was behind them. Loose Edgar, played by Calvin Harrison Jr., has become an all-star student beloved by his community in Arlington, Virginia. His African-American teacher, Harriet Wilson, Octavia Spencer, believes he is a symbol of black excellence that sets a positive example for his peers. But when he is assigned to write an essay on the voice of a historical 20th century figure, Luce turns in a paper that makes an alarming statement about political violence. Worried about how this assignment reflects upon her star pupil, Harriet searches his locker and finds something that confirms her worst fears. You watch the trailer and it's excellent. You know, I had, I got like six of these movies that I'm like, all right, what are these, which ones of these do I keep? Which ones I just discard? And, uh, the laundromat. I mean, my buddy Cab loves uh, Soderbergh, but I just I think he's terribly overrated. So I look at the laundromat. Meryl Streep's in it. Antonio Banderas, Gary Oldman. I'm like, all right, do I watch this? But apparently it's on Netflix anyway, so it's not like I have anything gold here with the screener. Forty two percent Rotten Tomatoes. I'm like, I'll throw that out. I go through a couple more of these movies. Yeah, nothing interesting. I'm right, loose. Let me just watch the trailer and see if the movie looks interesting. Trailer's fantastic, and particularly they set that up very big that the, the teacher finds something in the locker. What's in the locker? So of course I'm no spoilers. I'm not going to tell you what's in the locker. But it's, it's not what you think. Let me put it that way. It, it gives Octavia Spencer reason to be concerned about this kid. But um, it goes in some different directions than I would have expected. I'm not surprised that it was based on a play. Not that it's stagey, but I could see it being performed well in, in the setting of uh, being in one location. But I think Calvin Harrison Jr. had a hell of a 2019. I mean, this young actor, this guy was in Waves, and he was in Loose, both times playing troubled teenagers. I spoke about Waves, gave that a good review, Three Three Beliefs previously. And I'm giving loose three beliefs as well. You know, playing this guy, as the review read there, the, the synopsis, a symbol of black excellence. Smart kid, you know, came from a horribly impoverished background, but, you know, two white parents, you know, who saved him, who've rescued him, treated him as one of their own. All of a sudden now he shows what it's like, how rehabilitation can work, how one can strive for excellence. Um, but then something happens. He starts to go awry. And the political paper particularly is interesting. You know, he writes this paper talking about the reasons where violence should be allowed. And it's almost like a galvanizing call to arms. And I'm wondering if I was a teacher, would I really be that dismayed by it? I would say, okay, well, it's, you know, he's writing as a character. He's writing a viewpoint. I don't know if he's espousing these views. You know, he's not saying, hey, I'm like Mookie and do the right thing. I think if things don't go right, you should throw a garbage can and throw a pizza parlor. He's just saying in certain situations, violence may be merited. So I already thought that was that was unique that the teacher would call him aside and say, hey, I found this paper a little bit uh, disturbing the way you're writing this. I would think he's like, well, and naturally his reaction is, well, I'm just writing the paper, you know, from the perspective of this guy. I'm not saying that I necessarily believe in violence to all means. But then, of course, because of that, she goes and searches his locker, and then you find other elements to it as well. So I thought it was a very taut drama, um, all, of course, well acted across the board. I mean, Octavia Spencer, what a great actress she is. I mean, Academy Award winner for the help, but she makes interesting choices. And I mean, she could be doing other big budget movies, but to take a small indie like this, she's fantastic in the movie because she shows that this teacher is well-meaning, but perhaps has some dark secrets of her own. She's got a sister who has mental health issues, and that's obviously draining on her. Perhaps it's coloring her perspective on what to think about this student. Um, Naomi Watts is always really good. I loved her in a movie called The Impossible. It came out a few years ago. She was Oscar nominated. Uh, it's about the tsunami in Japan. And uh, I think she's so good. Obviously, Mulholland Drive, she's very good. And of course, Tim Roth, I love because of Tarantino, the connection there with Reservoir Dogs and Hateful Eight. He plays the father. He's a little bit more suspicious of his son. He's like, hey, what, why is this teacher going after you? And the kid is saying, Calvin Harrison saying, listen, well, she's got a vendetta against me. You know, she thinks that I'm like this perfect kid. I'm not, but like, just leave me alone. Like she's, she's, she's searching for something that's not there. And ultimately, it becomes a really strong morality play about the danger of putting expectations upon people and how that can be deleterious to them when you expect them to be a certain way and to behave a certain way because everybody has flaws, everybody has issues. But that doesn't mean that you should demonize them either. You kind of have to take them at face value. And it just shows uh, you know, the dangerous stereotyping um, 
within all elements. And it was interesting within this, you know, racial milieu. It's it's you know black upon black that is the one that is um, causing the racial disharmony. You know, it's not Watts and Roth. They're bystanders. They're trying to figure all this out. They're trying to take their son's side or or figure out the teacher's right. But it's Octavia Spencer, her own beliefs and what she comes from in her background that's uh, you know imparting the situation and it's affecting all of it. So I really liked Loose. I thought it was an interesting movie. Uh, like I said, it's a really independent movie that uh, obviously did well in the indie circuit. It's from Julius Onas is the director. Also co-wrote it with J.C. Lee. Check it out if you're a fan of that kind of subject matter. Loose. One thing I will say, Joe, terrible title. I mean, when I saw it, it's L-U-C-E and I go, okay, it's Luce because of course my Italian side coming out and I'm like, what? what, what? I mean, they got to get a better title than that because if I just see that, I go, okay, Luce, what the hell is that about? Like, I mean, I don't know. I guess you could argue Othello isn't the best title ever, and that's one of the great plays of all time. So maybe you could have a unique sounding first name, but I don't know. I don't think Luce was the best name, probably for it. Johnny Oletsky, o- Oleksinski. I always screw that name up. New York Post. One of the thorniest high school films you're likely to see. Luce is about simmering racial tensions in a suburb how fake smiles can cause them to boil over. Michael O'Sullivan of the Washington Post, based on a play by J.C. Lee, who adapted his own script here with director Julius Ona, Luce has a staginess that feels like it might have worked better in the confines of live theater. I disagree with Michael on that one. I actually thought it was well adapted. I didn't feel like it was a play until after this. I thought it was a play. Joe Morgenstern of Wall Street Journal, the narrative framed as a psychological mystery labors under more layers of significance than it can handle, though falling into contrivance and augmentation. Still, the dramatic core is strong. Would have liked to punch your ending. I'll, I'll give Joe that. I thought the ending was good. I would have liked a little more because it's such a provocative subject matter. But with movies like that, you enjoy the journey. It's not necessarily about the destination. It's about enjoying the ride. I recommend Loose. I give it three way beliefs. Joe? That, that seems like a great review on your end, especially since this movie seems to have gotten mixed reviews. But I'll just say Loose, listen, Adnan, the Nike swoosh was just a Nike swoosh before it was put on some shoes. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Loose, maybe it's the next big thing. We'll find out. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's definitely a unique title. It stands out. All right. Last thing before we get some entertainment news, and then Josh Horwitz is coming up in just a second. The Outsider, miniseries here on HBO, seven episodes in of 10 episodes. And the reason to watch it, the reason for me to watch it is Richard Price, quite simply one of my favorite writers out there. He wrote Clockers, which is one of my favorite books. He's written Samaritan. Uh, he wrote The Whites, which I'm currently rereading. Rare to reread a book, but I was like, you know what? I'm in the Richard Price vibe here since I'm watching The Outsider. So I'm rereading The Whites. It's a really good book. Um, he also wrote Lush Life, which is very good. He's also done a bunch of uh, movie stuff. He uh, wrote The Color of Money, which I think is one of Scorsese's worst films. But he also wrote Life Lessons, which I love. Marty adapted that. That's a 50-minute short film, part of New York Stories. Uh, so Price is one of these guys who's been around. Recently, what he did, which was phenomenal, was The Night Of. He was a co-writer on that, which was just a phenomenal show, uh, starring Riz Ahmed and John Turturro. So Price obviously has a good relationship with HBO. He co-writes The Night Of. Now he gets he gets to be the um, EP on The Outsider, which is an adaptation of a Stephen King novel. The synopsis reads as such, The Outsider begins by following a seemingly straightforward investigation of the gruesome murder of a young boy. But when an insidious supernatural force edges its way into the case, it leads a seasoned cop and an unorthodox investigator to question everything they believe in. The 10-episode season is based on Stephen King's best-selling novel of the same name. Price is writing, I mean, he's so good when it comes to cops and robbers. I mean, he's the best at police investigations and studying the morality of such you know he's got such a great ear for dialogue that's why clockers was such a great book and obviously a really good movie adapted by spike lee and um he just knows that terrain well i mean just new york guy knows the the rhythm of the dialogue so the dialogue i think is excellent throughout the show and mendelson is quite the casting coup you know he's one of these actors who you see and maybe you know him but maybe you don't appreciate how good he is it's nice to see him in a lead role like this he's just got such a great face to be a cop i mean i just i think of like casting is so important and you look at his face, you go, yeah, that, that, that hangdog expression, it just lends itself to this type of brooding subject matter, like the murder of a young boy, and you got Ben Mendelsohn's hangdog face. I mean, he just looks sad. He looks like a bloodhound. You know what I mean? That face looks like a, just a dog, droopy eyes, just miserable. Like, all right. Like, I would never want to see Ben Mendelsohn in a romantic comedy. Like, God forbid he does what Ray Fiennes did when he did Made in Manhattan. Like, maybe the agent said, listen, go work with J-Lo, make a bunch of money. Like, no, no, dude, you're, you're, you're Schindler's List. Come on. You're never going to be anything about that. So in the case of Ben Mendelsohn, I hope he keeps picking these hangdog roles and just, you know, types who are morally compromised and, and dealing with suffering. I mean, he, he's dealing with the, the death of his own son, which makes this case so impactful to him. And some of the, the biggest pathos of the show is when he's talking to the shrink about the death of his son and how um, saddening it is for him and how he's so uh, closeted and dealing with so much repressed emotion, even though he, you know, he tries to deal with it with his wife, Mayor Winningham. You know, there's so much stuff that's trapped in there. But the first episode, just like The Night Of, which, as I said, was a phenomenal show, 
but nothing could match the greatness of the first episode. Same with The Outsider. I mean, the first episode is outstanding. Jason Bateman playing a baseball coach, and he's the guy who is accused of murdering the boy. And Bateman actually directed the first episode. He directs it so well. These these uh, unorthodox angles, um, you know, high angles from way overside. I mean, it's just I loved his framing. I mean, watch the first episode of the Etzer and look at the framing. It's such a unique job by Jason Bateman. He's never going for like you know classic over the shoulders and two shots. I mean, where necessary, of course, but his establishing shots are so unique. I would think if I was a director, I'd watch the Etzer and look at the way Bateman directs it because obviously he's a talented guy. I think he won an Emmy or he won something for directing um, for his other show, obviously uh, Ozark. But uh, his directing the first episode is great, and his acting is even better. I mean, this is a guy who's proven he's not just a comedic actor, brilliant in arrest development, also very good dramatically. And here playing this coach who's astonished as to why he's being arrested. He gives one speech in particular in which he talks to Mendelssohn's character about when he taught Mendelssohn's kid to drag bunt. And of course, being a baseball lover, I said, I never thought I would be reviewing a show at the outsider and the best scenes about a guy talking about the beauty of drag bunting. But in essence, he's he's trying to exonerate himself, and he's telling Mendelssohn, like, listen, you know, I, I taught your kid this thing about baseball because I care about him, and I love him, this kind of person, I don't kill, I'm not a child killer, for God's sakes. And the story becomes fascinating because you go, how can he possibly be in two places at the same time? Because there's eyewitness accounts that say that they saw him in and about the scene of the crime, but then he has evidence that he was actually in a different city at that time. And they've got it on video as well that he's in two places at the same time. So then the story unfolds. And then you've got the element of the supernatural. And Cynthia Rivo's character comes along, I believe, episode four, playing Holly Gibney. And she's somebody named straight out of the X-Files. I mean, here he, she's here telling you, listen, this isn't just a simple open and shut case. This is something else going on and subjects from the netherworld. And then you really get the Stephen King material as this, this villain who, who can't be stopped. And it's a virus and it's insidious. And it, it feasts on people's pain and all the rest of it. So seven episodes in. Listen, it drags at times. It definitely is a little bit labored. You could have tightened it up a little bit, but I did like the cast and not only the ones I've mentioned, but also Julianne Nicholson, Patty Considine, the great Bill Camp. He plays Howard Solomon, an attorney. Bill Camp was also in the night of, so I imagine him and Richard Price, HBO have a good relationship, so he's back again. He's such a good actor. He was one of the, the best parts of Dark Waters, which I didn't like, the Mark Ruffalo film. But if you're a fan of the miniseries that HBO always puts out, if you're a fan of Richard Price, if you're a fan of crime drama, or if you're just a fan of Stephen King, check out The Outsider I will give it three Maple Leafs. Maybe not what the hell. Three and a half. I really like the style. and Like I said, the brooding nature of it. Three and a half Maple Leafs for The Outsider. HBO does it again, Joe. You took the words right out of my mouth. When, especially with your, uh, when you talked about the night of, too. Stylistically, the, when I was watching the pilot, it really reminded me of that episode. So I'm glad the entire thing seems to be pretty good so far. Yeah, I, I think, like, like I said, at times, I don't think it's Richard Price's best work. And like I said, I'm, I'm a huge devotee of his work. But I think if you like HBO miniseries and you like the subject material, and like I said, honestly, watch the pilot alone, which I know you have. Bateman in, in particular is his just fantastic. John Powers of NPR. Although this adaptation is too well healed for its pulpy material, the show has a terrific plot hook. I agree. And once I made peace with its moody rhythms, I found myself hooked, devouring the six hours available for preview in two nights. That's John Powers of NPR. Ben Travers of IndieWire says, with the help of a great cast led by Ben Mendelsohn, an eerie, stark direction from Emmy winner Jason Bateman. There you go. He did win an Emmy. The Outsider isn't in the level of Price's past work. Well, that's what I just said. But it's far better than the story has any right to be. It's a good point. It is very pulpy. I mean, it's you know literally a virus. Uh, Jack Hamilton is slate. The Outsider offers terrific performances, beguiling yet careful storytelling, and no shortage of genuinely terrifying moments. It it is something not best to be watched late at night because it does uh, it does get under your skin as stories like this tend to be. Check out the Outsider once again. Uh, next week we'll talk about curb your enthusiasm here on the podcast. By next week, it'll be six episodes in into season 10. Some entertainment news to quickly get to before we get to our guest. Margot Robbie, following her Oscar-nominated turn, she looks to have found her next project signing on to co-star opposite Christian Bale in a new David O. Russell film. Russell would direct from his own script, plot details being kept under wraps. Russell had been considering a handful of options in the last few months. He waited for the right cast to come together with Bale and Robbie's schedules opening. The opportunity to direct his first film since 2015's Joy looks to be headed in the right direction. What a disappointing movie that was. How the hell did Jennifer Lawrence get an Oscar nomination for that? Robbie comes off a busy 2019, of course, played Sharon Tate, Once Upon a Time in America. Bombshell got an Oscar nomination, most recently in Birds of Prey, reprising the role of Harley Quinn, which is a success, and also recently finished production on The Suicide Squad, also playing Quinn. Olivia Wilde's going to direct Carrie Strug's biopic, Perfect for Riverstone, hot on the heels of the Independent Spirit Award for Best First Feature. Booksmart director Olivia Wilde heading to Berlin with a new film. Uh, Perfect, the extraordinary true story of gymnast Carrie Strug's triumph against all odds to win Team USA's first gold medal at the 1996 Olympics. You think gymnastics, you're thinking of Carrie Strug. 
I mean, I'm not an American, but that was one of the greatest moments I've ever seen in my life when it comes to the Olympics. An American hero completed her final vault on a badly injured ankle, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. The iconic images seen the world over did not tell the whole story. They did not show the price that she paid. This is a film of what, what real power looks like. It's an excruciatingly beautiful underdog story that will thrust the audience of the heart of Carrie Strug. This is Olivia Wilde talking with unblinking raw honesty. It's an epic sports movie that will deliver on the wish fulfillment that makes those films so thrilling to watch. At the same time, it's unlike any sports movie you've seen before. How interesting is this, uh, Joe? Olivia Wilde, who I thought her performance was so ridiculous in that Clint Eastwood film, Richard Jewell, but she's an excellent director. She proves that with Booksmart. Now she's going to follow up with a sports movie about Carrie Strug. How's that for a U-turn? So, so curious and excited for this movie to come out. That moment was a made-for-movie moment, so I'm glad she's taking on this adaptation. Yeah, go look it up on YouTube if you don't uh, know what we're talking about. Carrie Strug, Unreal. And game over for HQ Trivia. I mentioned this for my buddy Scott Rogowski. Follow him on Twitter, Scott Rogowski, with some just lambasting of his former bosses. It was very entertaining. Scorched Earth type stuff from Scott. And of course, he's such a great writer. I wasn't surprised his verbiage was so good. And he and I will be reteaming on Change Up on the Zone. Uh, just about a little bit of a month away here from uh, baseball returning on March 26th. But HQ Trivia, which Scott was the face of, he was the reason it was so popular. The company behind the once popular live mobile trivia is shutting down HQ Parting Ways with 25 full-time employees. Launched in 2017, it became a global attraction. The company was profiled by the New York Times. Its original host, Scott Rogowski, became a household name, appearing on programs like NBC's Today Show. He was also on Colbert, which he has told very many stories about as well. Over the next year, the game's popularity faded. His parent company was hit with a series of setbacks. The company grappled internal turmoil, including the death of HQ co-founder Colin Kroll, who died in December 2018 from a drug overdose. So tough pill to swallow here for uh, Russia Spopov. Um, but obviously, I love Rogowski, and uh, he clearly is taking a victory. Not a victory lap, I don't want to say that, but he's obviously feels bad for all the employees who have lost their jobs. But he's not mincing words when it comes to his former boss. And I must admit, as fond as I am now of Scott, and I love working with him, I didn't actually play HQ Trivia. I knew what it was. But Joe, were you a real fan of HQ Trivia? Did you play it like everybody else was doing? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely had the app, and I was playing it quite a bit when it was more popular. And so I, I cannot wait. To see what happens, and I really like Scott and you on Change Up on Zone in one month. <laughs> Got the shameless plug in there as well. <laughs> Good stuff. Now it's time for our special guest. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's kind of like the coaching tree, right? You think of Andy Reid, you think of Mike Homer, you think of Bill Walsh, you think of the Ben Lyons coaching tree. Josh Horwitz, I know because of Ben Lyons, he's a terrific guy. Josh is a correspondent for MTV News where he's been leading their film cover since 2006. He's also got great podcasts, Happy, Sad, Confused, and as Ben told us recently as a guest on Cinephile, the festival rules that you should all listen to. I listened to the Julia Louis-Dreyfus interview, Alec Baldwin, very funny, great stuff from Paramount. Josh has many roles as well uh, in addition to his work at MTV and, of course, uh, he's got so many stories, but seemingly everybody in Hollywood. Thanks so much for the time today, Josh. How are we doing? I'm doing well. I, I, I just realized I'm nothing but an appendage of Ben Lyons, so I'm actually <laughs> feeling a little sad, but I'm going to stand on my own two feet. Damn it. It's good to talk yeah. to you, Adnan. Exactly. It's like when the, uh, the, uh, the student overcomes the mentor. Not that Ben's your mentor. I mean, exactly. you guys play the That's same age goal. anyways. Exactly. I'm Darth Vader to his emperor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good. Uh, Listen, I'm so happy you and Ben both got to be at the Oscars. Um, obviously, a triumphant moment for Parasite. Um, it's great for, for uh, foreign cinema. It's great for anybody who loves different movies. It's such an audacious film. Of course, I love The Irishman, so I'm still smarting from the fact it went 0 for 10. But I expected it to because on my ballot, I realized it was not going to come through. But uh, give me a sense of what it was like being there and, and seeing Parasite win. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, being uh, on the red carpet, as you well know, it, there's nothing like the Oscars. I mean, I, I've been privileged enough to do it a bunch of times over the years, but as jaded as you get when you're there, you're like, oh, this is this is film history. This truly is. And to be there uh, on a night when, yeah, like there was a legitimate great surprise. I mean, I, I'll confess, like many, like I was predicting 1917 to win, Sam Mendes to win Best Director. It kind of ruined my Oscar ballot at the end, but I was thrilled that 
Bong Joon-ho won that Parasite won that it made history as the first South Korean let alone foreign film to win Best Picture I mean you could feel the energy even on the carpet I spoke to Bong Joon-ho and he was like arguably on the award circuit this year I think the two superstars were Brad Pitt and Bong Joon-ho those were the two guys everybody wanted to talk to and I was thrilled to get to finally meet him on that night on the carpet just a couple hours before he took home all those awards uh it was amazing it was awesome yeah, and he's such an endearing guy. I mean, his speech when he won Best Director, as you and I both know, there, there can be a lot of pretentious people in Hollywood and, you know, fake acts and stuff. There's nothing false about that guy at all. He's 100% sincere. When he says he was not expecting to win, he means that with his heart. And his speech, how about this? He didn't he didn't thank anybody but the other nominees. Like, I always love when, when people do I know, that. I think yeah. the, fir- right, the first thing you've got to do is say, hey, I want to congratulate my other nominees. I think if you're a really good person, you actually specifically mention them by name and mention the role, which Joaquin Phoenix did, I believe, at the sag but Bongo, his entire speech he just praised marty qt mentions mendes and todd i'm gonna go drink until next morning like what a great speech no i mean the, the fact that yeah i mean look it, i think we all knew even you with your your irishman phrase and i love the irishman just as much as you uh we knew it wasn't going to be the night for that but the fact that he singled out marty as like the you know the standard bearer for everybody in that room uh meant a lot i mean i i think you know I, my film of the year actually was once upon a time in hollywood i love tarantino that being said, that guy like does himself no favors when he does speeches. Like he he's so oh, competitive. He, you know, you, you cut to him in, when he loses, he looks miserable. When he wins, he's not gracious in the right way. Uh, Bong Joon Ho did it right, where Tarantino probably would have done it wrong if he ended up that, on the stage. That, that is a great point you bring up, Josh, because I'm watching the Oscars and I got a couple of tweets where I go, "Hey, did you see Mendes' reaction?" So I immediately rewound the commercial. You're right. Marty looked tired. Tarantino looked pissed. Mendes gave one of those like. <sighs> like wow, wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Like I've won every damn award and I lose to this guy. Are you kidding? Todd Phillips and Todd Phillips, I think, is probably the biggest jerk of them because of his, you know, I can't do comedy now because of woke culture. I probably like him the least. He was the most gracious by giving a slight smile. So you're right. You've got to be better in the moment. And when Tarantino's speech, even when he went in the globe, he was like, Listen, I mean, there's no one to thank because you know I did it myself. I'm like, this guy is terrible at being gracious. Terrible. The worst. That being said, maybe my favorite filmmaker alive. Yeah, <laughs> I, I appreciate the filmmaking, not the speech making. Yeah, that's well said. He's obviously a great filmmaker. Nobody can deny that. Um, obviously, the Oscars were a ton of fun, but I, I love listening to you and Ben there at Sundance because you guys just, I mean, having been there once with you guys, you just, you're cramming three movies a day and you're just firing through as best as you can. There was obviously so many movies that uh, people are talking about. The Sandberg movie in particular got a lot of praise just because the fact, obviously, that's big time money for Andy to be able to, to break a record in terms of um, what he was able to generate for the sale. But what were movies that, for you that stood out? Ben gave us a bunch of them. In particular, the one, I think the Sienna Miller movie, he was weeping during and you were cradling him the entire time i mean i was i was i was watching the tears stream down his face throughout those hundred minutes uh and then we did the interview right after with the filmmaker which was remarkable but um i, I was definitely moved by wander darkly not as much as them but it's, it's a fine film and sienna delivers another great performance um my top ones you know yes predictably palm springs when i saw it was just the perfect antidote to everything you see at Sundance. You know, you've been to Sundance, you know that a lot of the, the stuff there is pretty dark and, and, and brooding. And Palm Springs is legitimate, like, uh, great comedy. It's, it's maybe the best use of Andy Samberg, the side of pop star. Um, and I think it's going to do well. You never know the Sundance bubble that you're in. It can be a little bit confusing to see, like, what actually is going to resonate in the real world. But that was probably my favorite film of the festival, him and Kristen Milioti. Uh, I don't want to say too much. I think the marketing will tell you what the concept of the film is, but it's a high concept comedy that is very, very funny. Um, the other ones that really broke out to me, I really like Promising Young Woman, which is the new Carrie Mulligan film that's opening actually in just a couple months. It already had distribution. Uh, it's kind of a, a revenge story about a woman who uh, is uh, kind of pretending to be taken advantage of by men in clubs and kind of enacts this kind of really nefarious uh, scheme on them. Um, it kind of reminded me way back when of like To Die For, kind of a, a, a really sharp black uh, comedy. Uh, Carrie Mulligan is amazing in it. Bo Burnham's excellent, a really nice ensemble of, of uh, supporting cast in that one. Uh, I really liked Boys State on the dock side, which got was a, 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 I think a big acquisition. I want to say by Apple, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, Boys State is this dock about every year the American Legion uh, basically takes a week out of the year for young men and women to create their own government. And they followed the boys' side of it for this week in Texas and watched them kind of go through the motions of electing leaders 
And in doing so, you kind of see what they do as kind of a microcosm of what we're all experiencing, the divisiveness, the, the politics, all the, the good, the bad, and the ugly that's going on in politics today. Uh, and it's a, it's a really well-done doc that has resonance to today. Um, yeah, I was thrilled that I actually saw good movies at Sundance this year. I've gone many years where I've just, like, through the luck of the draw, not seen anything I love. This year, I saw <laughs> a half dozen movies that were great. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, just that one experience I had, you're right. You can go from like just a, a giant film that you love and you embrace, you want to give a big hug to them, and then something else, you go, what the hell is this? Like, this is the, the people that hate independent cinema, they go, yeah, that's exactly the kind of claptrap that I have to sit through. <laughs> well, I was, I was, I was sitting two seats over from you during, uh, sorry to bother you. So I'm, I'm not oh. surprised you haven't come back to Sundance since. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't my illness. It was Lakeith Stanfield that drove me away forever. Uh, <laughs> you can always follow Josh on Twitter. He's really funny. He's always entertaining. Joshua Horowitz is where you can find him. He had a tweet a few days ago, which struck me personally because I love this guy too. You tweeted, I miss Philip Seymour Hoffman, an all-time great. This thought comes to mind about once a month. You have the gift where he says, I do many, many things, uh, which is from the master. No, I was just going to say, he's one of those that I, I don't even know if I was watching any of his films or if it really just, it was a random thought, but... um the fact that, like, you know, you take you you, you just throw a, a dart at a board and at, at any of Philip Seymour Hoffman's roles, and they were all so different from each other, and they were all so unique. And he was what in his early forties, and I think maybe I thought about it because I think he passed away right after Sundance one year, um, and just as like Heath Ledger died during Sundance one year, it's this horrible anniversary. Um, but to think of like the, the way he was able to balance leading man roles, obviously in Capote, he won the Oscar, but even just supporting turns like from, from silly comedies like Along Came Polly to like bad guys in Mission Impossible 3, he could do everything. So it's just that, that lost potential that, that really upsets me from time to time. I know. I, I agree that just his range is amazing. My wife is always mystified. She's like, what do you love him? What do you love him so much? Like, he, I mean, he's a good actor, but what? And I go, just because you, know, you don't look at him and think that's a leading man. Like, this guy's not going to be a star. That's pure talent. Like, that guy's just so yep. talented and must have worked so hard, right? He does not have what Tom Cruise has or Denzel or any of that stuff. But, like, he does in, in his own way because he was so charismatic just in an atypical manner. Yeah, I remember seeing him for the first time in Scent of a Woman and thinking, oh, this guy's like the smarmy jerk. I can't stand this guy. I actually hate, I think I just hated the character. And then over the years, I was like, oh, wait, that's just like an extreme talent that he has as he can go to, to these bizarre ends of the spectrum. Um, yeah, he was the best. Oh, so good. Also one of the best, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, you have a great relationship with. Like I said, I listened to the Festival Rules podcast and you gave a disclaimer. Your wife uh, is involved with the, the company or the corporation or the cause that right. Julia Louis is involved with as well. So I mean, I'm certainly, maybe that helps a little bit with familiarity, but talk about somebody who's incredibly talented and seems very warm and gracious as well. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with her and why you're such a fan of her and uh, this new movie Downhill she's made with uh, Will Ferrell. Yeah, I mean, look, like anybody, I grew up, you know, of my age, I grew up with her, uh, you know, watching on Seinfeld. So I, of course, uh, had great admiration for her. And then through Veep, which is arguably one of, I think, the best uh, comedies of the last 20 years, if not all time. Uh, yeah, my, my wife works for the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is an environmental group that Julia is on the board of directors for. It's kind of her, her pet cause that she's really passionate for. Um, and so I've gotten to know her on both sides, which has been really great, like through my wife and, and her humanitarian work, but also... Uh, I did a I do a series for MTV uh, um, uh, where I do kind of like long form uh, conversations uh, called Personal Space, where I did a, a long interview with her for the end of Veep, uh, and then I've since then caught up with her a couple times, including at Sundance. And um, she's just like my sense of humor. Like, and I love I love the combination of her and Will in Downhill. It's not my favorite film of the year. It doesn't work on all levels, but their chemistry works. Their awkward relationship works. For those that don't know, it's a, a remake of a great foreign film called Force Majeure that's basically about uh, a family tested in this bizarre circumstance when like an avalanche is triggered and the, the wife in the family, uh, the mom in the family protects the kids when the avalanche is coming and the dad basically grabs the phone and runs. Um, so it's a kind of, a, and that kind of sets off a spiral of, of, of uh, implications about how solid this family is. Um, the stuff between them in the film is great. The stuff I didn't love is, frankly, the the broader stuff in the film, the side characters. Whenever it focuses on Julia and Will, I'm all in. Um, those two are, for my money, two just like the most innately funny human beings on the planet. I actually ran into Will on the flight back from the Oscars on the flight, so was thrilled to run into him too. They're also just two of the nicest human beings on the planet. They're you, you couldn't ask for better people. So. 
That's awesome. It's always nice when you like star power, you know, with that mixed with genuine human kindness. I mean, it's, it's, it's an unmatchable, uh, unmatchable combination. Paramount Network also it has your first original digital series on location, which you host. What a great concept, Josh. As I'm reading this, I wish I've seen it. I got to watch this now. You have editions in which people look back at memorable locations from their iconic movies. For example, Robert Patrick retracing his menacing steps in Los Angeles as the T-1000 in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And Michael Mann talking about shooting the iconic crime saga Eat in downtown Los Angeles. M. Night Shyamalan returning to the yeah. church that housed pivotal scenes for the Sixth Sense. Great concept for a show. I'm sure the show's phenomenal. Tell me about uh, Michael Mann specifically, Robert Patrick, whatever you want. Oh my God! So this, I think this would be your jam. I think you should, you would enjoy this one. This, I can't take even take credit for the idea. They came to me with this, as you said. It's Paramount Network's first first digital series. We did we did six episodes on the first run. We're making more right now. Um, so yeah, so what we do basically is we go back to like an iconic film and an iconic location with one, with the, either the actor or director and talk about the process of making it. And I mean, talk about a project that is like made for me or any cinephile as it were, um, to be like on the street outside the bank where Michael Mann staged the giant shootout, maybe the best, you know, uh, bank shootout in film history. He walks me through the entire thing. He brought, he brought his schematics from the, and they, they are schematics, like literally on the top of the, the chart, it's, he called the sequence World War Three, And just, it has, it's like, it's like a, a map of like staging a war. And he just talked me through exactly how he shot this amazing sequence. Robert Patrick, we went back to where they did the, the freeway chase and he's chasing down Arnold Schwarzenegger, or rather Arnold Schwarzenegger, I guess, is chasing him down on the motorcycle. Um, so yeah, there are these surreal pinch me moments. And often the actors and the directors, like M. Night Shyamalan hadn't been back to that church where he shot um, the first sequence between Bruce uh, and Haley Joel in 20 years. So they're back at these locations for the first time, and it brings up all these great memories and just has them talking about these famous films in, in a little bit of a different way, a little bit more of a personal way. So it, it's for a film fan, I think you would really dig it. Oh, I can't wait, man. I'm going to watch the Michael Mann one today. It's called On Location on Paramount Network. Is there a web address specifically, or do I just, where do I, I just Google this and I'll find it? Yeah, just go to uh, Paramount Network's uh, YouTube page. Uh, it's front and center. It's like I said, it's their first digital series, so they're giving it a lot of love. Awesome. I can't wait to watch that. Last one, Happy, Sad, Confused. Of course, the podcast we've been doing for a while. I just want an Al Pacino story. You know, I adore Pacino. I had Feinberg on, our buddy Scott Feinberg. He was just telling me Pacino stories. This is just, all of this has been a ruse, Josh. I just wanted to just tell me about Pacino. I just love hearing about Al. Anything, anything about him. One of my regrets this season was I didn't catch up with him again. Yeah, I've done. I did Al on the podcast a few years ago for that. Uh, it was a Barry Levinson movie. Oh God, now I'm blanking on the, the humbling. That is that. It was about four years ago. The humbling. The humbling. Thank you. Yes. Um, and, and Al is. Uh, I think. I think actually a podcast is really the right environment for him. I know Scott got to do him in front of an audience, and I'm sure that worked too. Um, yeah. But I had him. Like, you know, I think you might know this, Ed, man. If you listen to the podcast, I do my podcast very lo-fi and it's, it's purposeful um right. i do it in my office in new york it's like i've got my like childhood movie posters big trouble in little china ghostbusters 2 all these silly posters from my childhood uh and it's and it's usually just the guest and me um no like accoutrements and yeah al pacino came into the office for about an hour and just regaled me with story after story i mean he's 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 a He's an odd guy, right? He's like he's tan he's tangent after tangent. We don't know where to begin or end. But um, <laughs> that was one of those pinchy moments where, like, yeah, my second sight was what, what watching from from overhead. Me and Al Pacino talked for an hour. I uh, we also did. You know, the name of the show is Happy, Sad, Confused. Um, you know, I'll tweet this out again to you if you want to see them. But the photos Please. we did afterwards, he was so game. We do we do these silly photos. We do a happy. We do a sad. We do a confused. And to have like Al Pacino basically acting for me on command, um, I don't know what I did to deserve this uh, opportunity, but it was a real pleasure. And I loved him in Once Upon a Time. I'm sad that campaign didn't get uh, get going more, or rather for uh, the Irishman. We're both of them, actually. Yeah. By the way, in Once Upon a Time, as you know this, apparently they shot like 30 minutes. Like that scene with him and Leo is quite long. And then Tarantino cut it down. I'd love to see the 30 minutes of that. That'd be unbelievable. I know. I'm wondering if Tarantino is going to do my, my one of my regrets on the carpet was I didn't get Tarantino and I want to ask him or Leo. So he's been ta talking about this, that he's written five episodes of Bounty Law, <laughs> the series within the show. <laughs> my question for him or Leo is like, is Leonardo DiCaprio really going to shoot five episodes of an old 1960s cowboy show for you? I don't see that happening. I'd be thrilled, but 
I don't know what Quentin. I mean, what Quentin does with this downtime is fascinating. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, please do tweet those links at me right now. I cannot wait to watch Al Pacino. Happy, sad, confused. Support Josh Horwitz. You can do so by watching and listening to all of his stuff. As I mentioned, Paramount Network, original digital series on location. As Josh mentions, go to Paramount Network's YouTube page. You can follow him on Twitter at Joshua Horowitz. And of course, support, subscribe, rate, and review not only Happy, Sad, Confused, his podcast, but also the Festival Rules, which he's doing with Ben Lyons. The nicest thing you've done for me was at the Critics' Choice Awards a year ago after I stalked Paul Schrader and waited for him to come out of the bathroom just to tell him how much I love First Reformed. You know, I, I thought I felt a little, you know, guilty about doing so. And you said, listen, I'm telling you right now, that was probably the highlight of his night. Like you, you're raving about First Reformed. Trust oh, yeah. me, he's gonna like that <laughs> stuff. These guys love these things. <laughs> Are you friends with him on Facebook? He has quite a Facebook page. Well, this is, yeah, I, I'm not. I, I am not. I, I've kind of, I haven't gone back to Facebook in a while, but I, I could imagine Paul's got a lot of okay. strong opinions about a variety of subjects. He has a lot of, he has a lot of opinions. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from them. You two could be best buds. You never know. <laughs> I just love that you love First Reform because that's one of those that I was like, how the hell did this movie not get more love? I was so happy. At least he got nominated for oh, screenplay. Dark, but so, so, so beautiful. Amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Great stuff, buddy. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate you. Thanks, man. Good to talk to you. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Mount Rushmore. Thanks so much to Josh Horowitz. I, I'm going to do the rest of today is watch Al Pacino. Happy, sad, confused. It's so funny. An odd guy. <laughs> tangent <laughs> to tangent. Uh, Mount Rushmore of HBO original series. This is impossible. Are you kidding? This is a great topic that Joe came up with in honor of the HBO miniseries, which we reviewed earlier, The Outsider. So I'm going to run down the list because maybe all of you don't realize how many options there actually are. Get ready for this. Animals, Ballers, Barry, Big Little Lies, Big Love, Boardwalk Empire, Bored to Death, Camping, Crashing, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Deadwood, Dream On, Eastbound and Down, Enlightened, Entourage, Euphoria, Extras, Flight of the Concords, Game of Thrones, Girls, High Maintenance, Hung, Insecure, Los Spookies, Oz, Rome, Sex in the City, Silicon Valley, Six Feet Under, Succession, The Brink, The Comeback, The Deuce, The Larry Sanders Show, The Leftovers, The Newsroom, The Night Of, The Righteous Gemstones, The Sopranos, The Wire, The Young Pope, Togetherness, True Blood, True Detective, Veep, Vice Principals, Vinyl, Watchmen, and Westworld. HBO original series. Okay, so The Sopranos is my favorite drama of all time. Tony and company, the show still rings true. 20th anniversary took place last year. Of course, I went to Sopranos Con here in Jersey. I'm still geeking out about the fact I got to meet Uncle Junior and uh, so many other of the great cast members. Uh, Catherine Narducci could not have been nicer. Love Charmaine Bucco. Obviously, Sopranos is number one. Oz, great show. Right. Oz is, is such a great dramatic show from the great Tom Fontana. Uh, of course, he worked with Barry Levinson on a homicide life on the street. Um, incredible cast. Eamon Walker, Lee Turgeson, uh, just just dark and no holds barred. It was really a breakthrough at HBO. I mean, I watched it when I was in college. Me and my boy Jay Nats. We just we just love Oz so much. Sopranos and Oz are there. Now we're going to go comedies. Larry Sanders show is my favorite comedy of all time. I knew at the time in high school how accurate the show must be. Once I actually started working in television, I was even more amazed at how 
uh, Gary Shaling just nailed it. Conan O'Brien once said, he said, you know, the, 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 the whole issues of Larry battling ego and insecurity and that battle between wondering what people are going to think of you and, and, you know, having vanity yet self-loathing, he goes, he just nailed that. Conan goes, you ask anybody at TV, anybody who works in a talk show, he goes, that show just nailed it. And they did it with such acerbic, cutting humor, such a smart show. I mean, they could go broad when need be with Hank Kingsley. Hey, now. But they could also do it with Artie as Rip Torn playing. And I've worked with so many producers like Artie now. I mean, just just raw, raw. Come on, boyo. You know, tough guy. And, and obviously, Larry is at the heart of it. Shailing obviously wrote so much of the show along with Peter Tolan. They both won an Emmy for the season finale. Of course, the Larry Sanders show is a no-brainer, which leaves one spot remaining. And I'll leave it for the show, which we'll talk about next week. That is Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think in many ways, it's better than Seinfeld. I think it's, you know, more laughs per minute. Yes, it can be grating for some, but I just think that Larry's neuroses are uh, an adventure unto themselves. Uh, the fact it's so rooted in improvisation, to me, I just am amazed at the talent of that cast. Um, for them all to kind of, you know, operate the same beats. Uh, Susie Essman and Jeff Garland of the, the great Richard Lewis. I mean, they're so good at working on so many different levels, and the show is very topical. And when it's funny, it's, it's scathingly funny. Kirby Enthusiasm, Sopranos, Oz, and The Larry Sanders Show. I know Wire fans, come at me. I'm not putting it on my top four. I'm not putting in Sex in the City, okay? I'm not putting in Entourage. I, I really wanted to get Deadwood in there. God, my buddy Mike Kiss, never going to talk to you again. Deadwood is a great, great Western. And Extras is hysterical. I mean, Ricky Gervais, that show is beyond funny. Those two did not make the cut, though. Joe, your list. First off, way to read all those names, Right at the beginning. That was genuinely impressive. It, 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 this is so hard. I was telling you off air that, that I've been racking my brain for the last 24 hours trying to figure out what I'm going to choose. So here it goes. First, I agree with you. Number one, The Sopranos. Greatest nice. television show of all time. I am a wire guy, so I will come at you. I, I think it has to be included <laughs> on that. Um, okay. And you know, the best time to watch The Wire the second time that's what i so it's one of those shows that they bring up a character like four seasons later and you're just supposed to know who they are um and then i'd be remiss and i know this might not be the popular opinion but i am going to put game of thrones on there for its cultural impact especially in the age of social media and i really think that it was the show that defined this last decade um so i will put in game of thrones for that and then my i have to go with comedy so hard to choose. So many good comedies, but I'm going to go with Veep just because the writing's so sharp. Julia Louise Dreyfus is so good in it. Each character, the whole cast, is it's great. So I'm I'm going to go with Veep, and those are my four. All right, I was going to say a lot of Veep fans out there. My brother loves Veep, and Rogowski. I mean, people who really like their comedies. They tell me Veep is awesome. I've only seen a couple episodes. Going to be honest, I didn't get crazy about it, but that's probably on me. I'm going to go ahead and say that's on me. There's enough people. It's won enough Emmys, bushel bushels of Emmys. I'm sure it's a great show. I just haven't given it enough of a chance. And I'm sure somebody out there is thinking, what about Ballers? No, can't do it. <laughs> uh, Boardwalk Empire, by the first couple, I thought it kind of got, it was a limp finish, but I did think the first couple of seasons were really good. Um, of course, I love uh, Michael Shannon. Yeah. Michael Shannon's unreal. Who else? Oh, kind of Valley. Probably kind of Valley. I believe he won an Emmy playing Jip Rossetti. He was so good in that show. And uh, obviously, Barry at some point might get on this list as well. But that's why it's such a good topic from Joe. Tough list to disseminate down to four. Yeah. Well, if I can add really quick, too, I heard Six Feet Under, like they have one of the greatest finales to ever happen. And, and, yeah. and also, I just will plug Succession again. I think it could become mm-hmm. one of the big HBO shows in a few more seasons. I'll just say that. I was about to say, it's good if we have one that we say, hey, here's one that could crack the list in a couple of years. So I'll say Barry could and you'll say Succession. Those are good uh, good notes to make. Great. Total Recall. All right, now it's time for Total Recall. Uh, we return with this segment, the films from 2013, so the 2014 Oscars as we go through the major categories. In case you're new to the podcast, we read the nominees and then discuss which we think should have won. Uh, maybe we're blessed with the passage of time, and I think even at the time I would have said these movies should have won. But yeah, we, 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 re, we re-vote for the winners. Go ahead, Joe. Best picture from 2013 films, 2014 Oscars. 12 Years a Slave, American Hustle, Captain Phillips, Dallas Buyers Club, Gravity, Her, Nebraska, Philomena, and The Wolf of Wall Street. 
Yeah, I'd love to get The Wolf of Wall Street in there. But honestly, I think 12 Years a Slave was the right choice. Brad Pitt won his first Oscar. Of course, part of Plan B with Jeremy Klein and all the rest of those guys. I thought McQueen really did make a great film. It was very powerful and emotional and took you on a journey. And, and I mean, it was, it was unflinching. That's the right word for it. 12 Years a Slave, I think, was the right winner for Best Picture. American Hustle, highly overrated. Captain Phillips was excellent. Hanks was uh, unjustifiably snubbed, actually, for Best Actor. Dallas Buyers Club, we'll get to it in a second. Obviously, Gravity, known for the directing prowess. Her, I thought, was horribly overrated. God, any people love that movie. I thought it was so ridiculous. Nebraska, I really enjoyed. Philomena, Colin Cowherd, loved that movie. He wanted to win because his mom's British. And of course, Wolf of Wall Street would have been my number two choice. Very funny. Definitely has some great moments, but I would have gone with 12 Years a Slave. I am going to go with Gravity. Oh. Uh, yeah. I, I, you might, this is such an unpopular opinion, but I thought 12 Years a Slave, such powerful story, such great cast. I thought it was so Hollywood, though. And the score of it, just everything about it just screamed, this is for the Oscars. And I know that's unpopular, but that's how I felt about it. Wow, I like it. Joe, come with a hot take. Okay, hot take. best director. <laughs> Alfonso Coron for Gravity. David O. Russell for American Hustle. Alexander Payne, Nebraska. Steve McQueen, 12 Years a Slave. And Martin Scorsese, The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I'm partial McQueen, obviously, because I think 12 Years a Slave should have won Best Picture. The winner, by the way, was Coron. And I, I, I get that it was for the technical expertise, but I, it's not a movie that I return to very often. Again, American Hustle is horribly overrated. I don't think O. Russell should have been nominated. Pain I love. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. And Nebraska's a really good movie. I don't think it's as great as his other films. I don't think it quite matches, you know, Sideways or The Descendants. So, of course, I'll go with my man Marty. I thought The Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, this is a guy in his 70s at this point, and he makes arguably the funniest movie of his career, maybe second funniest, along with The King of Comedy. I mean, that was, as Leonardo DiCaprio referred to it, a modern-day Caligula. I mean, it's just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's hysterical from start to finish. Wolf of Wall Street. I'll go with Marty. I agree with you on this. I got to go with Martin Scorsese. It's in scenes like subtle things when Leonardo DiCaprio is like on a bunch of Andean or drunk. And oh, the, the falls, Quaaludes. That scene yeah, was the incredible. Quaaludes, yeah. yeah. And then like he falls down the stairs and all of a sudden the <laughs> stairs, which are like four, turn into like 40. And yeah, it's it's great. It's great. Got to go with Martin. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It was so well directed, those scenes. I mean, that movie flew considering the running time. All right. Best actor. McConaughey won. Who else was nominated? Kristen Bale for American Hustle. Bruce Stern for Nebraska, Leo for The Wolf of Wall Street, and Chiwetel Ojiofor for 12 Years a Slave. He was excellent as Solomon Northup. I wouldn't have an issue if Leo would have won. I think it's one of his best performances. Don't have an issue with McConaughey winning because obviously he really gave himself the role. But I would have gone with Bruce Dern for Nebraska. Great Hollywood actor, never won before. I thought he was excellent as Woodrow, Woody Grant, uh, this guy who's obsessed with getting his lottery ticket. Uh, I thought he was so good in that role of playing this lovable old coot. Bruce Dern I would have gone with for Best Actor. Of all these movies, Nebraska's the only one I haven't seen, so I can't speak to it, but I will go with Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club instead. It's definitely a great performance. He obviously lost 40 pounds. He really kind of dedicated himself to the role, part of the McConaughey Renaissance, whatever the hell it's called. All right, Best Actress. Kate Blanchett for Blue Jasmine. Amy Adams for American Hustle. Sandra Bullock for Gravity. Judy Dench for Filmena and Meryl Streep for August Osage County. Uh, as always, Meryl Streep is very funny playing Violet West in August Osage County. Uh, Dench is fine uh, in playing in Philomena. Bullock is gravity was all right. Uh, Amy Adams, brutal American Hustle. A wildly overrated movie. Should not have been nominated. By the way, Bale shouldn't have been nominated for Best Actor either playing Irving Rosenfeld in American Hustle. The Academy got it right. Kate Blanchett was fantastic in Blue Jasmine playing Jasmine Francis. A woman on the... Uh, I mean, seriously, she could have be straight out of a Cassavetes film. She's like Gina Rollins. I mean, she's a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown. I thought she was amazing in Blue Jasmine. I know it's unpopular to support Woody Allen movies these days, but I thought she was tremendous. I hard agree, loved her performance in this, but also more importantly, American Hustle was so overrated. It was so it was just so many oh. actors trying their hardest to act and outact each other. I didn't feel like they were making a movie just trying to get an Oscar the whole movie. Couldn't agree. It was like a caricature of a crime film. I mean, it was ridiculous actually sitting through that movie. I, I couldn't believe the amount of love that movie got. Ridiculous. Yeah. And also Christian Bale's like bodysuit, whatever he was wearing, it just took me <laughs> out of the entire movie the entire time I'm watching it. I did like the first scene with his hair. I mean, the ridiculous comb over. It was really good. All right. Uh, best supporting actor. Jared Leto for Dallas Buyers Club. Bakad Abdi for Captain Phillips. Bradley Cooper for American Hustle. Michael Fassbender for 12 Years a Slave. And Jonah Hill for The Wolf of Wall Street. 
Michael Fassbender was a, uh, just a horrifying villain. I'm playing, playing Edwin Epps, and he's a guy who one of these days is going to win an Oscar because he's truly incredibly talented, and I wouldn't have had an issue if he had won. Um, Leto was good in Dallas Bars. Barkat Abdi would have been a nice pick out of the gate because, you know, I am the captain now. He was really, really good. Cooper, a horrible nomination. I mean, this is shocking to me. America, as I'm looking at this again, American Hustle was up for Best Picture, Best Director. Three of the actors were nominated. Are you kidding me? And we're going to get to a fourth when we get to supporting actors. How disgusting is this? The winner should have been Jonah Hill for his teeth alone playing Donnie Azoff. Steve. Steve Madden. I mean, hilarious. I mean, comedic roles never get recognized. And he was hilarious in The Wolf of Wall Street as Donny Azoff. But I, I'd never thought he'd have that kind of levels of, of humor to him. You know what I mean? Super bad, he's funny, but this is like another level of funny. His chemistry with Leo and the, just his behavior. <laughs> Even at the end when Leo was telling him about being clean and Jonah Hill was like, not me, man. Like, I love it. Like, I love all this stuff. Sex, drugs, you name it, man. I just love it all. Uh, I thought he was tremendous playing a very amoral character. I would have gone with Jonah Hill for an Academy Award. I completely agree with you. This was the Wolf Wall Street was the first movie where I was like, "Oh, Jonah Hill can really act," you know, and he and he's gone on to do more serious roles since. But yeah, I would go with Jonah Hill. I will shark, uh, shout out Barkat Abdi. He is a Minneapolis guy, so I would give it to him. Oh, as that's a right. I was going to say big Somalian population in Minnesota. That's right. Barkat Abdi is from Minnesota. Joe's roots the Twin Cities. Best supporting actress. Lupita Nyong'o, 12 Years a Slave, Sally Hawkins, Blue Jasmine, Jennifer Lawrence, American Hustle, Julia Roberts for August, Osage County, and June Squibb for Nebraska. Uh, Julia Roberts, I'm surprised she got on for August, Osage County. I mean, it's one of those very actorly pieces from Tracy Letts, but I didn't think she was, uh, I mean, she was all right. She's definitely very pissed off in the movie, for lack of a better term. Jennifer Lawrence, ridiculous nomination for American Hustle. Every single actor was nominated. Awful. Sally Hawkins, I always liked. She was good in Blue Jasmine. Always have time for June Squibb in Nebraska. <laughs> Again, really funny role, but the Academy got it right. Lupina Inyongo won Best Supporting Actress, 12 Years a Slave. I agree with the decision as the role of Patsy. I agree with that win. And I, I will say there's somebody here omitted for Best Supporting Actress, and I would throw in Scarlett Johansson for her. I know oh, she's yeah. not in the film, but she's the, um, the you know, voice. The, the voice in it the entire time, and I thought she did a fantastic job. So I would take out Jennifer Lawrence and put Scarlett Johansson in, honestly. Yeah, I wasn't crazy about the movie, but I'm with you. The voice acting never gets enough love, and she was definitely really good in the role. How about Best Original Screenplay? Her by Spike Jones, American Hustle, Eric Warren Singer, and David O. Russell, Blue Jasmine, Woody Allen, Dallas Buyers Club, Craig Borton, and Melissa Wallach, and Nebraska, Bob Nelson. And I didn't like her, but I really like Spike Jones, so I have no issue with the fact he actually won an Academy Award. Um, you know, I love uh, being John Malkovich and adaptation, so I, I will consider this his win for her to be for his other work, so I'll, I'll give it the Lifetime Achievement Award, so I'll agree with the win for her, even though I didn't care for the movie. If I had a second choice, it obviously would not be American Hustle. It would not be Blue Jasmine. Dallas Buyers Club, pretty good script. I would have gone with Nebraska, Bob Nelson. But in the case of this, I will go with name recognition and body of work. Spike Jones, the rightful winner. I'm going with Spike Jones too. Also a big Spike Jones fan. Love all his music videos, all of his movies. And I actually, you might hate me for this, but uh, I did like her. Um, and I thought it was a good screenplay. I was also going through a breakup at the time, so it did resonate <laughs> on that note as well. <laughs> All right, fair enough. If Joe had his heart broken at the time, I will give that a pass. <laughs> Lastly, best adapted screenplay. We have 12 Years a Slave, John Ridley, uh, based on the book 12 Years a Slave. Before Midnight, Captain Phillips, Philomena, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Would have loved to have seen Terrence Winter win for The Wolf of Wall Street. Again, he was one of the, the great writers behind Boardwalk Empire. And I think, again, it's such a funny script and it's got so many memorable moments. I would have gone with either that or Before Midnight, just because I'd like to see Ethan Hawke win an Oscar. I thought that was the weakest of the trilogy from Linklater and Delpy. I thought Before Sunrise and Before Sunset were better. But again, if you want to go Lifetime Achievement, I wouldn't have minded that getting an award. But my pick, uh, the, the winner was 12 Years a Slave, John Ridley. Again, really good script. But I would have voted for Terry Winter for The Wolf of Wall Street. Definitely The Wolf of Wall Street. It was a ridiculous movie. Love it in every way. Definitely will go with The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, I mean, this the creativity to think of some of those scenes. And I mean, you're adapting Belfort's book, which I mean, just has stuff all over the place. And to actually streamline that, that's, I think, a harder task than people realize. Thanks so much to Josh Horowitz. He was a great guest. So funny. Support him and his work with MTV News, Happy, Sad, Confused, the Festival Rules podcast, and of course, his uh, series on Paramount. He's going to be tweeting out his stuff with Pacino. So cannot wait to see that. We had him as a guest. Uh, we got plenty more coming up. Next week, I'll talk about Kirby Enthusiasm. We'll be talking to the creator of Utopia Falls, RT, at some point. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. 
The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com